Hello and welcome to BSD Talk number 246. It's Friday, October 31st, 2014. I'm here in Boston getting ready to head to the airport on my way to meet BSD in California. I'm really excited to have been given the opportunity to attend and I'm looking forward to saying to hello to all of you who were there and, uh, you know, getting to hear some excellent talks. IX Systems always puts on a, a great uh, conference and I'm looking forward to yet another one. So of note, um, I guess related to my last podcast where uh, the server that host was hosed, I, I guess I would say, that housed all my uh, podcasts, um, still looking for ideas on what to do. And first of all, I do want to say thank you to the various people that have emailed me with offers of hosting. And also I had a variety of people email me with some some suggestions or examples of what they do themselves, either hosting at their house or hosting at some kind of provider. I'm still tossing a variety of ideas around. So if you haven't heard back from me, I'm, I'm sort of still collecting data. And I wanted to sort of let you know what my parameters were. Essentially, I'm looking for a couple things. One is I always like to have somewhere that I can SSH into and just have a command line, a Unix-like command line available to me. Uh, I want it to be something that allows me to host some web files, uh, basically a basic web server. It doesn't have to be anything special. doesn't have to move a lot of traffic. But the other thing that I'm looking for is something that um, is low maintenance and can hopefully survive for a long time. So what have I been experimenting with so far? Well, some of what I can do is look at what I have available to me. And one is I do have an home, a home internet connection. And so I could host right there. I could just set up a machine. And I do have a Socrus machine, a little Socrus box. And that's what I like about that is it has no moving parts. And so in theory, I don't have to worry about too much. But that hardware, while being low power and low maintenance, does come with its own limitations. Because if I want to store a lot of data for a long time, obviously I need to make sure I, I back it up regularly, but I'd also like it not to fail. You know, you just, I don't want to have to deal with restoring either as much as I can, and I don't want to have data sort of go weird. And I think a lot of people might point to modern file systems like ZFS or Dragonfly's Hammer. And I think, you know, that is definitely the future of file systems, file systems like that. But if you have a small device, you know, because I don't want to run up my electric bill by having some monstrosity making a lot of noise in my house and heat and, you know, making my power bill go up, you're sort of limited in what you can do. And I don't know how hard and fast those rules are, but when you read about ZFS, essentially it always recommends having a couple gigs of RAM and even, you know, the real experts say you should really have ECC memory and also to make some of the features of ZFS useful, I would want to have more than one drive. And so getting that to fit into something of you know so small might be a little difficult. Uh, Hammer and Dragonfly, that's another file system that might be interesting, but Dragonfly is going to be dropping i386 support. And so that little device there, um, you know, isn't going to have a future of, you know, many years. So to a certain extent, I think that my Socrus machine, at least the one I've got, what is it, the 4504? 15501, I can't remember. Um, you know, I think that that's something that probably can't be my long-term solution. 
really what I need is some low power but 64-bit capable machine because that will be a bit future-proof. Now, regular file systems, UFS, or the fast file system, are great. You know, they work, and they've been working for a very long time, and so I probably shouldn't, you know, discount them. It's not like I'm going to have, you know, terabytes of data. They're going to take a lot of time to do a file system check when it boots up. But there's something about that extra security of a modern file system that makes me happy. So not quite sure what I want to do yet. You know, at this point, I've um, put a, you know, small box on the Internet, and I also decided that I wanted to try a service called PageKite, and they're out of Iceland. And what's nice is it's a little Python script that essentially allows you to um, tunnel out, and they can be your web address, and they can handle the SSL for you, and it's pretty cheap, and they let you pay what you want. And what's also nice about it is, um, you know, it's literally just a Python script that can be run by anybody, and you can do arbitrary port forwarding. So for having a home machine uh, on your cable network, it allows, I guess you'd almost say some... Um, network transparency or, you know, a layer of abstraction between you and the outside world. And, you know, so I'm giving PageKite a try. Not done yet. Haven't figured out exactly what I want to do. Obviously, hosting with an outside provider has its own conveniences. It's really not that expensive anymore. But some part of me is wondering, am I just going to be wondering, you know, how long that place is going to be in business? So I'm not really sure. Uh, As you can tell, um, This hasn't been something that I've been devoting enough time to. I do need to get my main URLs back up and running and get all my audio files hosted there, but at least archive.org is doing a lot of it for me. And uh, yeah, thanks again for those of you who have been um, offering your hosting or offering some suggestions. And I guess what I wanted to talk briefly about uh, today is essentially how to shoot yourself in the foot using Tor. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what I tried with the Tor Onion um, router on OpenBSD. Needless to say, there's been a lot of revelations lately about NSA spying and collection of data and everything else, but you'll also see in the news a variety of news stories about countries that are enacting laws that say internet service providers have to collect metadata for, you know, six years, ten years, something like that. And, I mean, regardless of your reasons... um, if if you were looking to use the Tor Onion router to, I guess, obscure your traffic, um, you know, what are some things that you might want to look out for? But you know, I, I want to really cut to the chase and say, just because you're using Tor, you're still not safe. Um, but here's some sort of things that I was playing with just to see whether I could. So first off, I just decided, all right, I'll install um, OpenBSD and then install Tor from ports. And, you know, traditionally what I do is I'll launch a web browser that points at Tor as my SOX proxy. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Tor, Onion routers or, you know, things like that have been around for a while. And if any of you were familiar with the old mix mailers for email, there were things that basically when you send something out, it gets encrypted and then put in another layer of encryption and another layer of encryption as it hops around sort of a random variety of hops on the internet and eventually um, pops out the other end. And these are relatively secure. I mean, you are putting your trust um, to a certain extent in the designers of the software to not have made mistakes. And, um, you know, I'm not a, a cryptologist or a programmer by any means, so I just sort of have to trust that Tor is well-written and also keep it up to date. Uh, I like to think, though, that 
Tor is kind of like, uh, you know, with regular internet traffic, we're often sending everything on postcards. And with Tor, you're putting it in a pretty secure envelope. But if most of the world is sending things using postcards, when you start using envelopes, you could actually decrease your security or at least make yourself a person of interest in certain countries by using Tor. The, the mere fact that Tor traffic is identified by your local internet service provider as leaving your home, to a certain extent, could uh, make you more likely to be spied on. So um, certain kinds of encryption are not great depending on where you live. With Tor, though, like with a web browser... Um, I'm not sure you know, whether more web browsers are starting to do this by default, but for a long time, your HTTP or your web requests would pass through the Tor Onion browser. But when you type a web address into your web browser, it actually asks the operating system to make a DNS request. The resolver will go out using the DNS protocols to find the IP address of that final you know, website. And by default, those DNS requests don't go through the Tor Onion router. And you need to make sure that you adjust your web browser socks proxy settings to say use remote DNS or, I mean, it varies by web browser whether you're using um, Chrome or Firefox or something else. So there are a lot of ways that you can have information leakage outside of Tor. And you'll see in a lot of the setup guides, they've got things for how to set up a whole variety of other things on your system to pass through Tor, whether it be your instant messaging clients or something else. So this is sort of where... Um, the OpenBSD part came in, and essentially it was the PF firewall. And when the Tor port gets installed, it runs as a user underscore Tor. And the PF firewall allows you to set rules by user. And so what I did was I said, hey, you know, I, I want to make sure that there's no, or I shouldn't really say no information leakage, but I want to minimize the amount of information leakage that, that happens. And so I just went to the default pf.conf, which is the file for configuring the pf firewall on OpenBSD. And at the end of it, I just added block out all, which means nothing leaves my, uh, well, I shouldn't say nothing, nothing uh, that the pf firewall talks to or deals with will leave my uh, laptop. Um, but I then added pass out proto, and then you can do the curly braces tcp, comma, udp, all user underscore tor which basically means the only traffic that's supposed to be leaving my um, laptop to go out to the internet is uh, packets generated by the Tor Onion router. And so nothing else works on my laptop. Even if I had something installed like instant messaging or, I mean, even if I try and do, you know, fetch new packages and ports, it's all not going to leave. So it's Tor only. You still, um, DHCP will still work when you boot up the computer because that happens um, before the EPF firewall is up and running. And uh, certain things, you know, stop working, like you'll see uh, messages that your uh, network time protocol daemon can't talk out and this and that. But you can drop your PF firewall if you want uh, in order to update packages and other kinds of things. So, you know, that generally kind of worked. What it meant is um, unless you had your browser set up properly, Tor wouldn't work. So once I had remote DNS working, uh, that PF firewall rule did a pretty good job of enforcing Tor-only traffic. Now that being said, and once again, I am no expert on privacy whatsoever, but I, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, at least from what I understand, what Tor does for you and what Tor does not do for you. So essentially, 
Tor is going to hide your traffic inside of encrypted traffic that looks pretty similar to regular SSL traffic or other kinds of traffic. And to use some very simplistic analogies, the internet is kind of like the phone system where everyone's got caller ID. You need to have a source IP address and a destination IP address and all your packets that fly around if you ever expect to get information back to you. And so what Tor tries to do is um, obscure your source IP address and also encrypt your traffic in a way that each hop along the way isn't aware of the full chain of where everything's going. So that in theory, it's difficult um, once your web request hits some remote website, it's difficult for them to know the original source IP address of that request. But I don't think that that makes you 100% anonymous. If you have a laptop where you're using Tor and you're using Tor all the time, I think as I said before, just the presence of Tor traffic can um, identify you of a, as a person of interest if your local ISP has been asked to identify that kind of stuff. Um, the exit node, essentially there's going to be a bunch of hops on the internet and that last um, exit node where your web request leaves the Tor network and then goes out to the regular web server has a certain amount of um, control over what happens to your data. And unless you specify specific exit nodes, sort of in its default configuration, Tor just sort of goes out there and does its thing and somehow finds out which exit nodes or which nodes are available and builds a path. And next thing you know, in theory, everything is working right. Um, if Edward Snowden's documents are to be believed, at least according to the news articles that I've read, they did outline a variety of ways that government agencies are trying to attack people who use Tor. And it may not be directly attacks on the Tor protocol itself, but um, one of the things they do talk about uh, is something called uh, egotistical giraffe. And I don't know where that comes from, but maybe it's just a, a giraffe that sticks his neck out <laughs> too far, uh, thinking that he's safe. But the exit node, um, they basically run a malicious exit node, and as traffic exits the Tor network, they identify information coming back from a website and basically can well either redirect where your traffic is going or inject stuff as it comes back. So if you were using the Tor network to, let's say, download your Flash Player update, they can, in theory, um, monkey with that binary and have your computer install a Flash Player update that also includes something else. And so that's what these documents allege, that that kind of stuff is going on. Um, something called Fox Acid that's used to attack the Firefox web browser. There's also been things where they had this Tor browser bundle, which was a piece of software that ran the Firefox web browser plus Tor, in theory all pre-configured for you, but the version of Firefox was vulnerable, vulnerable to um, a variety of exploits. So it, um, it still means that your computer and the software and everything else, because essentially through the Tor network, you're reaching out to the internet and pulling stuff back into your computer and often executing whatever that is, whether it be Flash or Java or anything else, or just weird HTML code that can exploit your browser. And if they're already looking for you, they can do some pretty bad stuff to you. So I guess what I would say is um, Tor can be a useful piece of the puzzle when it comes to online privacy, 
But don't think that using something like Tor makes you um, completely anonymous. You know, I think another side of this is if you're using Tor all the time for all your day-to-day stuff, you know, you're logging in. If you log into Gmail or Yahoo Mail or something else, they know who you are. It doesn't matter that they don't know what your original IP address is. They know who you are. And if you don't log out or if you've got a variety of cookies or flash cookies or other kinds of things, um, they can still kind of track you. I know the browsers have things like incognito mode. And I mean, I guess what it is it's just a lot of layers and a lot of layers. So um, be careful with what you do. Also, um, as much as Tor tries to hide among um, regular traffic, there's software, probably the most common example I've seen on the internet. It's a Windows only program, but it's called Caploader. And that's used to do traffic classification, basically, rather than just looking at port numbers and that kind of stuff. It really tries to do statistical analysis to figure out what kind of traffic is being carried. And that claims to be able to identify Tor traffic pretty regularly. So um, either way, you know, I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting little trick with a firewall rule. It probably breaks a whole bunch of other stuff on the system to do that. Um, but for short-term uses of Tor... I think it, you know, it seems to work pretty well and adds an additional layer of protection against shooting yourself in the foot when you think you're, you know, encrypting everything through Tor and you're not. Um, at the same time, I, I think if you've got a computer that you're using Tor, probably that computer um, should not be a computer that you use for anything else in your life for your regular stuff, logging into your email or anything else. I mean, just your browser version patch level operating system screen resolution and the variety of plugins and the versions of those plugins that you have to a certain extent creates a fingerprint of your device and if you've ever used wireshark to look at the session um, the http session when your web browser talks to a web server before it issues the original get request for the index html file there's a whole little conversation that goes on between the web server and the web browser that you know describes what you've got uh, and once again there are ways to hide that too. But uh, just a little bit of caution, a fun way to play with Tor, but don't ever think that Tor is going to keep you completely anonymous. So anyway, if I see any of you at the uh, Meet BSD, uh, stop by, say hello, and uh, I guess until November and happy Halloween. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 246.